0: I'm Kate Daniels. Bruce M. Beeler is an ornithologist, naturalist, conservationist, author, and lecturer. He is a research associate in the Division of Birds at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. He's published 11 books about nature, and his latest, the focus for our conversation, is North on the Wing Travels with the Songbird Migration of Spring perhaps it will inspire some special excursions of our own in our own backyard or the state or perhaps a partial journey such as Bruce undertook. So let's meet Bruce to learn more. Bruce Beeler, good morning and thank you so, so greatly for being with us this morning.
1: Kate, it's a great pleasure to be here with you.
0: And, you know, this I did not expect that we would have such an interesting setting for you as we have this conversation by phone uh, that uh, you're you're snowbound uh, by choice camping uh, way out in the wilds.
1: In Algonquin Provincial Park in central Ontario, it's an absolutely magnificent place. The great thing about it is they have the, the, the wherewithal to keep a campsite open the year round with electricity and a hot, hot uh, shower room, which makes all the difference. So I spend all day long out in the snow, but then I can come in and take a hot shower, which is, makes all, really is a wonderful thing.
0: And so what's uh, rather curious about this, too, do you have uh, m- many companions around you or others out camping at this time of year?
1: Um, there are a few. There are probably 10 or 20 other families or individuals in the campsite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of them are here looking for, they're looking for moose or wolves or, uh, or some of the winter birds that you get here, uh, the winter finches and things like that. So uh, you, it's amazing. Those Canadian people are very, very hearty and, and very friendly as well.
0: Well, that is so excellent. And of course, because this morning we are connected, because we want to talk about your brand new book, North on the Wing, Travels with the Songbird Migration of Spring. And, uh, you know, we're not quite at spring this year, but uh, I'm going to guess that perhaps you are there to enjoy the bird life that exists at this time of year.
1: It's actually, believe it or not, there are not a lot of birds here, but the ones that are here are quite special. They're, they're birds of the far deep north. Uh, many people don't even know about these birds. They're called crossbills and grosbeaks and purple finches and pine siskins. We, oh, this morning I saw a black-backed woodpecker, which is very rare. And uh, the male and female were together starting their spring courtship in the snow. It was really quite something to see. <laughs>
0: And so, Bruce, this is, of course, your life's work is working with birds. You've been bird watching since in your book, North on the Wing, you tell us that this started at a, a very young age. So when you say that these are birds that people aren't normally accustomed to seeing, are they <laughs> somewhat familiar to you or is this new for you as well?
1: Well, this is the third time I've camped up here in Algonquin, or the fourth time, actually, if you count. I camped in one corner of Algonquin Park during uh, at the very end of my big trip that's reported in North on the Wing book. Um, But um, yes, I've seen all these birds before, but each time I see them, uh, it's quite special. Uh, I see them so infrequently, and I tend to see them under very special circumstances in a special place. And that whole sense of place, it sort of takes you back in time. It's quite a wonderful thing. Seeing these birds every few years, it reminds you of other wonderful experiences out in wilderness.
0: And and that's what's really exciting, to, you know, to take, take this from your life where you've spent your life with birding, uh, if you will, that there's always something new and fresh and you're learning new things. So I think that that, too, uh, should be part of our story, In sharing this, what you've done, your adventures with our audience, that, you know, every time you go out, there's always something new, some new awareness, a a lot of fun, if you will.
1: Well, the trip I took uh, took me through some remarkable territory that I had never seen before. I'd never been to southeast Texas where I began the expedition and that's where I met these migratory birds coming from South and Central America. They come across the Gulf of Mexico. They land on the coast of Texas and Louisiana, having flown that 800 miles across, you know, without stopping, across the Gulf of Mexico at night. And I met them on the shore and followed them in, in a sort of a rhetorical sense. I followed these birds north up the Mississippi River, stopping in green spaces where the birds stopped, up to the headwaters of the Mississippi up in northern Minnesota, then crossing the border into Canada, Ophala, continuing up into central and northern Ontario as far as I could drive, where many of these birds actually make their nests up in the far north boreal Canada, which we call the Great North Woods. And there is there are two sides of it. One is the new and one is the old. And the mixing is actually a wonderful thing because I might see a black pole warbler, uh, the first time in that spring in 2015, but it will remind me of a, the first time I saw a black pole warbler back in 1962. So the combination of the novelty and also the history is uh, really adds uh, to the joy and to the satisfaction of this sort of experience.
0: And I feel that with your book, North on the Wing. Reading it is certainly informative. It's entertaining. We can have this vicarious experience. But really, uh, the goal would be to use this book and and use it maybe uh, as a companion to replicate parts of your journey.
1: Absolutely, um, and I tried to sort of paint a picture. So the reader could really feel like they were in some of these very special places, um, one of the discoveries of the trip um, traveling this sort of unknown route for me was was just the number of wonderful places there are in our essentially in our backyard, whether we're in Washington state or whether we're in Maryland or whether we're in Missouri or in Minnesota. Each one of these states has scores of beautiful places to spend a day or a weekend or a week or even a month and you know with the seasons they change and especially in the spring with the the flush of all the insect life and the plant life and the birds coming through it's just a fantastic experience.
0: Now going back then to this big journey that you took now nearly three years ago and it lasted 100 days is that right? That's right. So nearly about 25% of that year was spent on the road. And with these birds, was it really um, then the same flock of birds that you saw coming uh, across the Gulf?
1: Well, probably not.
0: No. Because
1: okay. the, um, well, first of all, we're talking about hundreds of millions of birds. But I saw flocks of indigo bunnings, these beautiful, glorious little cerulean blue birds coming across, literally landing uh, on the Texas shore uh, and landing in the grasses and the trees. And I followed those. I saw flocks of those indigo bunnings all the way up into southern Minnesota, which is the northernmost breeding habitat for those birds. Basically, each day I would see these little indigo bunnings. They were essentially my ambassadors leading me along. In these back roads, these country roads that I traveled, in the little nooks and crannies where I camped. So you know, the first time I saw them on the shore of Texas and Louisiana, I saw would see flocks of 40 or 50 at a time. I'd never seen that before, but as I moved north, I would see these flocks as well, and it's really quite something. Normally, you know, if you're out in the summer let's say going out with the family to to have a picnic or something, you'll see one indigo bunny, not 40 or 50. So doing it during the spring adds that uh, numerical advantage of seeing numbers of glorious birds all at once.
0: That sounds heartening, thinking of these great flocks of birds, but really in context, are those numbers good or are they waning? What is the status for us with our bird population?
1: Right. That's a good question. Uh, Sidney Gautreaux, uh is a radar biologist. He's been studying migration by songbirds using weather radar. He's been doing this for the last 50 years. And what his uh, team has shown is if you look at that radar of the birds coming across the Gulf of Mexico, the volume of birds has declined by about 50% in the last 40 years. So this is a pretty objective way of looking at, you know, counting the birds, because each bird is like a, basically like a raindrop. You can actually see it on the, on the screen of the radar. So we've lost perhaps half of our migrant songbirds over the last 40 years. So even though I have reason to be hopeful about things, a lot of these birds have declined substantially, and it is something that we really need to be concerned about and to take action on behalf of. We can bring these birds back. We can bring them back to the numbers, the populations to the numbers that they were back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But we need to do a lot of things. So we need to work up in the breeding habitat in the north and in the stopover habitats in the middle of the country and also in the wintering grounds in central and Mexico and central and South America. We need to be working conservationists partners from different countries. We all need to be working to conserve these places these migratory birds need because if they even lose one of those three places, they're going to have a tough time surviving. So they've, they've really made the bar high for us because unlike some of the birds I'm seeing up here in Canada that live on the same patch of ground year-round, these birds need happy habitat in Canada, in Missouri and also down in southern Mexico and Nicaragua in order for their populations to continue to do well.
0: And when we're talking about this international situation with the birds, and uh, at times we have good relationships and other times perhaps they're somewhat strained, how do we come together to make sure that these habitats um, are maintained or actually in some cases they need to be regenerated?
1: Right. Uh, The good good news there is that we have... Hundreds, probably thousands of people who are dedicated to these birds and dedicated to nature conservation, who love nature and who love these beautiful green spaces and who will spend their lives, whether they're in Venezuela or Ecuador or Panama or uh, southern Mexico or southern Louisiana, uh, they're people out there on the front lines, working on behalf of these birds and the habitats that they need. Is it an uphill battle? Yeah, there are times that, uh, uh, there are challenges that we've said are big challenges. Um, but I am confident because of human nature and because of human willpower, that we will uh, win these battles and we will not lose any of the species that I'm talking about, these migratory birds, the warblers and the flycatchers the vireos and the thrushes and the beautiful orioles, all these birds, even though their populations are down, I am confident that that with the the right interventions, we will be able to uh, continue to have these birds for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren.
0: And your story, I feel, is certainly a a great testament and uh, really an encouragement or an awareness for anyone listening for themselves, but if they have children or work with children, that uh, there's such an inspiration that this is not just uh, your the work that you've been doing, but this is a passion that began very early in life for you, Bruce. Right?
1: It, it is. I, you know, I first fell in love with birds when I was seven or eight, and uh, I've never really lost that love of birds, and what what the birds have given me you know it's uh for free at no charge has been basically uh, a very satisfying and wonderful life uh an antidote to uh depression you know on a on a gloomy february day you see a great bird it really perks you up it makes you happy it gives you joy it reminds you of other times you've seen that particular species really uh, that what birds give us is really quite a remarkable thing and I really feel for those people who don't see and hear these birds they just pay them no mind they don't get that uh, benefit they don't really get that joy and that satisfaction of basically communing with the birds year-round and life a whole lifetime long and it really has been something for me and I am really beholden to them and in many ways this book this is a popular book it's telling all my fellow Western Hemisphere friends uh, and acquaintances, that this really is something. Uh, it's it's you know it's really something to hold on to, and if you don't know about it, you really need to link in. And it's also a you know it's basically a thank you to the birds. It's a it's an acknowledgement of what they have given me and what they have given many of us uh, over the years. It's really quite a remarkable thing.
0: And of course, they're integral to our entire ecosystem, which is our life. And that's an awareness. If we don't really grasp it, we we need to really connect into it and become aware and and pass this on to our children, nurture that in their their young years, as was done with you.
1: The birds, uh, the bats, uh, the butterflies, you know, all are doing their part to create this wonderful, interactive, complex web of life that makes living on Earth worthwhile. Uh, It supports many of the things that we need to have have a healthy and happy life, and we really need to take care of our counterparts because, in essence, without even knowing it, they're taking care of us. So, yes, we really need to know about it, We need to invest in it. We need to invest in our friends and the institutions. Sometimes when our government is not perhaps saying or thinking the right thing, we need to get back to them and let them know by email or by text message or by letter uh, through our representatives and delegates at state, local, and national levels that, yes, nature is important to us. I care about nature, and our government needs to make sure – that they are taking care of nature. And of course, we can't be 100% dependent on government. So we need to look at the non-governmental organizations, the, the Audubon societies, the American bird conservancies, uh, the nature conservancies, those not, not-for-profits, those private not-for-profit institutions are doing a lot of the good work too. And they care about nature and they are, they're pulling weight for us. So we need to support them annually as well.
0: And this is a good time to be thinking about these organizations, thinking about nature and our national parks as we might be looking toward uh, vacation time coming up and making plans for that where we can p- put ourselves in some of these places, these habitats to really get a greater appreciation and, and thus be more passionate about making sure that this lasts and continues.
1: Absolutely. Summer's a great time to go out camping at a place like Algonquin Provincial Park. But don't forget spring. Spring is fantastic, and it's starting now, and it's going to go for about 100 days. And spring has so much uh, to bring joy to everybody's hearts. And you just need to get out, get out of the office, get out, <laughs> and, and just drop a few things, pick up a pair of binoculars, and get out to one of your parks nearby get out to the coast get out to one of those green spots that's so beautiful and watch the birds migrate north for spring and uh, you'd be surprised how wonderful it is
0: and I feel for real inspiration, if we're not quite at that place yet, your book, North on the Wing, chronicling your 100 days uh, with additional stories. But really looking at this in depth is, uh, I think, just as you were raised with your mother reading to you, reading to, to together uh, as a family, reading to our young kids can certainly uh, spark that flame inside of us.
1: Absolutely. My book is really nothing more than a knockoff on a famous Pulitzer Prize winning book called North with the Spring. It was p- written by Edwin Wayteel and published in 1951, which chronicled his trip with his wife uh, from Florida north to New Hampshire. It was a very, very similar trip. And my mother read bits of that book to me after dinner when I was just a very young thing. And the inspiration that that book provided never left me. And when I retired, I thought back to that book and said, I'm going to do something just like that now that I can spend 100 days away from the office. Most of us, of course, don't have 100 days to give. uh, But it's something you can do sometime. You really want to give it to yourself, give you that treat where you actually get away from the computer, get away from the office, get away from home. Get out into nature. If you can spend 100 days, you'd be surprised what it will give you back.
0: So great inspiration. We probably can't do it. Of course, you know, that is perhaps a goal to set. What a great adventure that is. Because how many miles did you actually travel, Bruce?
1: Um, By car, about 11,000 miles. And I had a bike with me and I had a kayak. And had my feet, of course. So I did a lot of driving. I did a lot of walking. I did a lot of kayaking, and I did a lot of biking. And um, they were all great. They were all different. They all got me to different places. And um, it was just a wonderful combination to really capture all of spring.
0: You mentioned early on uh, encountering. Well, it was the indigo bunting right yes. yeah, that you had not seen in such great numbers uh ever before was there anything else in your journey that really stands out in your mind that uh you know you want to maybe go back and experience again not exactly the same of course but to uh see if you can find that again
1: well you know the far north the deep boreal country of northern in Central Canada, where I am today, there's something special where you have moose and wolves and, and f- fisher cats and pine martens and you up for a little further north, there are migratory caribou and wolverines, and then you've got hundreds and hundreds of species of birds that are singing all spring and summer long in the in the spruces and the balsam firs and tamaracks. The you know, at night, to be able to, where I was in the far north, I was up almost to the middle of James Bay. That far north, around 52.30 north latitude. That's that's as far as I could drive north. And the sun, it didn't get dark till around 9:30. Almost, it was still a little bit of light at 10 o'clock at night. And the Swainson's thrushes were singing in the in the conifers behind my tent. And then every now and then I would hear uh, a loon calling off on a lake, and then once I heard a wolf howling. Those sorts of things, you, you, you can't buy those. They're so precious, those experiences that don't happen every day. Just to be part of this giant piece of nature. That's the boreal forest, the great north woods. I think that's probably the most memorable of all, being up there. That's a country that used to be owned only by the First Nations, the Native Americans. And uh, it's really quite a spectacular uh, expanse. Ontario, the province of Ontario. We we always talk about – let's step back. We talk about the 10,000 lakes in Minnesota. That sounds like a lot. until you get to Ontario with 250,000 lakes not 10,000 250,000 and there're probably an equal number of lakes in and in, in Quebec just to the east so we're talking about these these big spaces with wild lands and wild creatures it's it's really quite remarkable
0: and so na- I would imagine naturally you did kayak in that area
1: absolutely yeah it's. I would be the only person out on that lake at night or watching the sun go down, watching the moon come up, and uh, uh, playing around with uh, the loons uh, as they glided around on the calm water, um, hearing a barred owl off in the distance, uh, seeing the mayflies uh, skitter over the, uh, over the water, and... You'd look off to the shore and all those spruces and firs sticking up you know into the sky, those uh spires of the conifers uh It's really um, one of my favorite uh places to be just sitting out on the lake. The nice thing about being in the middle of the lake also is you get away from the mosquitoes because uh in late June and early July, the mosquitoes and the black flies and the noceems and uh, the deer flies and the moose flies uh because it's of course the full time of year when the, when nature is at its most extreme you not only get the the wonderful flush of vegetation but you get quite an amazing flush of insect life not just butterflies but the biting ones so that's something to deal with
0: yeah <laughs> so you're letting us know if you're in that situation make sure that you have a, a canoe or a boat with you so you can get onto the lake
1: or, yeah, get onto the lake to get away from the or have a head net if you're at your campsite. Uh, and there are some other new things that can uh, do battle with some of those biting insects. But, you know, they really didn't bother me at all. It was just part, you know, it's just part of the experience, and i do it again in a minute.
0: And that you chose to go there in the middle of winter, basically.
1: Well, of course, that that don't have to worry about the insects. <laughs> yes. Although there's a little tiny insect that actually lives on the snow, and I was just seeing it yesterday—a little springtail, tiny little thing—that somehow lives on the top of the snow. Gosh, only knows how that works, but uh, some evolutionary biologists can explain it, but I can't.
0: And and that may, just makes me think back to what the book North on the Wing is all about, and the bird migration, and and thinking of how. Is tenacious, how strong, how absolutely intelligent these creatures are to make this trek across the the continent of, uh, you know, and starting south of the continent. Uh, it's just amazing and remarkable that they they have that ability.
1: Well, the, they have the physical ability. That's remarkable. But even more astounding is the fact. Uh, that they have the navigational and orientation mm. and homing ability, they're able to travel from a, a small patch of tropical scrub or forest in northern Venezuela uh, across the Caribbean, across the, the Gulf of Mexico, up the Mississippi, up into Ontario, and find the very bog, the very probably the very spruce tree where it was born. Um, over you know it's 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 a it's a two and a half month trip that they take to do that, but I don't. But the question is, how do they actually find? With you know they don't have a GPS and they don't have a compass. Uh, they're they're finding these two needles in haystacks on the southern and northern ends of their trips, in the from the tropics to the northern boreal forests. How do they do that? It's really and that's something. I was talking to an evolutionary biologist, Martin Wokelski who works on bird migration. And he admits, I saw him just last week, he admits that we still don't know completely how they are able to get from point to point. We know that they can. They have a sense of magnetic north and south. They, they can actually feel, they can actually sense the magnetic lines of the earth. They can look at the sun and the movement of the sun across the sky and, and thereby, uh, again, find direction. They, they're able to see polarized light, the plane of polarized light that helps them, again, to see where the sun is and to actually see where the sun sets, which helps them find north and south. But the east-west is the hard part. Once they get up to the, 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 the latitude of their nest or the nest they're going to build, the question is how do they know go traveling east-west. That's a bit of a... Uh, a mystery for all of us, uh, still wondering about bird migration. So, we know a lot about bird migration, but we don't know uh, how they actually, you know, close the deal, actually get it back to their nesting spot uh, up in the far north. And it's something probably that biologists will be working on for the next uh, next decade or so to figure that out.
0: And that's what is so awe-inspiring, and and what is so invaluable about this part of nature, of all of nature, but the birds can help us to realize how integral they are to our life and to, you know, you talked about having hope as to what's going on. I I think getting away like that and seeing this can certainly uh, inspire us to be hopeful. Just spending time
1: in a beautiful place with beautiful birds, hearing the sounds of nature inspires hope in all of us. And it makes us want to pick up the cudgel and fight the good fight and never give up. Uh, Never give up on nature, never give up on birds and wildlife, because, you know, that's, we're part of it, whether we like it or not. We're integral to that. It's integral to us. And the birds can teach us something. Their navigational abilities have something to teach us, obviously. We have many, many, many things to learn from them still. Some times we feel arrogant. We feel like we know everything while we don't. And it's the birds and it's nature that can humble us sometimes when we look closely at it. And there's plenty more to learn, but at the same time, there's plenty more work to do on behalf of uh, nature conservation to make sure that the migratory birds and the migratory system and the wonderful habitats that these birds are moving to and fro to are protected for all time.
0: And I feel that you have done a, such a great service. You've given us this gift of your book, your travels, North on the Wing, Travels with the Songbird Migration of Spring. Bruce Beeler, I really am so grateful that you've spent time with us also this morning to kind of open up some of the book and inspire us to make it our own and really get involved with life and nature.
1: Uh, Kate, thanks so much for letting me tell this story because it's, it's an important one, and I, I love telling it.